welcome to the latest episode of the Kanazawa University LSI podcast. The Nano Life Science Institute at Kanazawa University was established in 2017 as part of the World Premier Institute Research Centre Initiative of the Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, Science and Technology, MEXT. Scientists at the Nano LSI are combining their cutting-edge expertise in scanning probe microscopy to establish nano-endoscopic techniques to directly image, analyze, and manipulate biomolecules for insights into mechanisms governing life phenomena such as diseases. Today we're joined by Professor Karsten Bita, who is an overseas-based principal investigator at the Nano LSI WPI Kanazawa University and faculty at the University of Potsdam in Germany. In this podcast, uh, he describes his research on biological physics on the scale of individual cells based on microscopic observations and manipulation, a modeling using pattern formation in nonlinear systems. So, Professor Bitter, welcome to the Nano LSI podcast. And I'd like to start by asking you to give us an overview of your research activities, um, background, aims, and so on. Yes, of course. Um, so I uh, I work basically at the interface of uh, physics and biology uh, in a field that is called uh, cellular biophysics. And within this field, I'm mostly interested in uh, how cells move, so in cell motility, as, as we say. And there are actually many different cell types, many cells that, that move at some uh, point of their life cycle. And they can also move in very different ways. There are cells that crawl across surfaces and, and others that swim in liquids. And these uh, uh, motions, they, um, they are essential for many biological functions. If you think, for example, uh, how a wound uh, heals or how your immune response works, uh, and also uh, less uh, nice processes such as the spreading of cancer cells or the spreading of infections, all those rely on cell motility. And um, yeah, so in, in my group, we basically use um, a combination uh, of experiments and theoretical modeling to address questions of cell motility. And uh, on the experimental side, we have a um, wide range of, of different techniques. It's mostly live cell imaging and, and microfluidics to manipulate individual cells. We also work on different cell types, both crawlers and swimmers, and also at different spatial scales. So we have techniques to look inside individual cells by fluorescence imaging. So what is going on inside the cell? But we also record um, the trajectories of movement of the entire cells and and uh, do statistics of these trajectories so that is maybe on the experimental side and theoretically um, we uh, use numerical model simulations and, and data analysis some advanced data analysis techniques uh, a lot we are also involved in some more rigorous theory but this is more uh, than in collaboration with the uh, pure theorists, so that's uh, we are more on the numerical and data analysis side. Um, for example, um, my group is part of a collaborative research center at the University of Potsdam uh, that focuses on data assimilation. 
where we try to uh, collaborate with mathematicians to de develop approaches um, that allow us to establish um, a closer link between cell motility models and then the experimental data that we uh, that we observe. I see. Thank you. I'm wondering how you have coped with the, uh, you know, with doing research within the context of the COVID pandemic. What uh, problems, issues have you had and what is the situation like now? Yeah, yeah, it has changed many things, of course. And it's also true that it's started to relax now over the past month, even though the numbers are still high. But with the current uh, variances, it, uh, variance, it's apparently not as dangerous anymore. But the last two years, yeah. Um, so there are different aspects to that. On the one hand, there is uh, maybe the teaching at university that was affected dramatically. So we mostly went to online teaching, which uh, when it started was a big uh, challenge for all of us because most of us have not done that before. So there were all the technical aspects and the recording of video lectures and, and all this. So in the beginning that had that really took, so the first semester under COVID conditions, I was basically knocked out uh, in terms of research because I just had to focus on getting the online teaching uh, running. But once that was set up for the uh, following semesters, it became better in the sense that uh, we got used to it and uh, also the students got used to it and the teaching started to run more smoothly. On the research side, I would say that uh, it probably was very different in different places in Germany because we are a federal state, so the regulations are different and even individual universities had some freedom to, to decide how they wanted to do it. And Potsdam uh, was not very strict in the sense that they uh, still allowed us to access the, the lab buildings. So we were not forced to stay 100% at home. Uh, so we could all, almost all the time maintain the laboratories running, uh, of course, at a reduced um, rate. So there we could not, uh, there were only so and so many people allowed in each room mostly one or two people maximum, also in the offices. So the research group, we basically had to agree who was coming in on, on which day, who really needs the lab desperately because he or she had to finish her thesis maybe. So, but we could still at, at a lower rate, but we could still uh, keep on working. So I would say on that end, we were not uh, affected too much. Um, it was more... Um, at the level of the team, I would say, because if only some people come in, this really affects your communication a lot. So uh, in the beginning, it was okay, but I realized after a few months, um, it started to become difficult because people didn't talk to each other anymore. There were tensions rising because, you know, you come into the labs and there's still stuff from the person that was there before, but you can't chat with them and and it's so so there were some tensions in the team so we had to introduce additional uh actually online meetings more regularly also short meetings where the whole group met just for like a coffee break of half an hour to exchange like daily um, problems daily questions from the lab or also from administrational and theoretical, whatever. So, so we, we introduced a, a tighter um, 
communication scheme. And I think that has solved some of the problems. But in the long run, it's really not a very uh, healthy uh, situation to run a research team more or less remotely. That's uh, because a lot of ideas come from spontaneous discussions uh, at, at the coffee machine, at the board, mm -hmm. and, and, and all these things. They So for some of the graduate students, it became very, um, they really felt uh, isolated and, and uh alone with their projects even though we had regular video conversations it's not the same as when you are in the lab and your fellow students are there so yeah so i, I would say technically we could carry to uh, carry on our work but um on a, a team level regarding human communication uh, it, it became uh, quite difficult yeah. mm -hmm. so that all naturally also affected the the way projects went. Yeah. And do you think there are any positive sort of byproducts of going through the COVID uh, pandemic over the last two years? Yeah, yeah. I, th I mean, so again, with the teaching, I would say that some, of course, I, I, I would not, I don't think it's a good idea to go to 100% online teaching all the time, but th th those are additional techniques that you can use and, and introduce mm. to to make the whole uh, way you teach a class much, much richer. So I think there's some things we can take along and, and everyone will benefit from it. Also that you have maybe um, video recordings that you can recycle for people that cannot attend the class for some reason and all these things. Those are, this is positive, I would say. And also um, concerning the research, I think the option to attend conferences uh, in a hybrid or online way is also a benefit because I, last year I attended a couple of meetings that I would have probably not uh, attended. Like for example, the American Physical Society meeting, the March meeting. Sometimes I went, but you know, it's a long trip and then there are only a few sessions that are interesting for you and you might just not attend at all. But if it's online or part of it is online, you can just uh, come in for a few sessions and, and, and see what is going on and you don't have to fly to the US. And also other collaborative projects with colleagues from overseas um, became much intenser through the use of uh, video chats. Of course, these we had Skype and other things before, but somehow we weren't using it that intensively. And now I... I have, for example, an ongoing collaboration with uh, colleagues in Israel that I just meet very regularly. And before COVID, we were also collaborating, but not meeting that regularly. So it, somehow it, uh, it, 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 yeah, it, uh, these, we got used to these uh, remote uh, conversations and that it, it can help in fostering collaborations that are with people that are far away. Yes, certainly some positive things have come out of it, but I wouldn't like to go through it again. And now let's move on to Kanazawa, and can I ask you, what are you doing with your colleagues at the Nano LSI in Kanazawa? Yeah, so part of um, my research concentrates on uh, the dynamics of the actin cytoskeleton, um, which is a, basically a biopolymer network inside the cell at the inner side of the plasma membrane uh, that uh, basically gives the mechanical properties and the shape to, to the cells. 
and it's also the uh, the basic force generating uh, machinery that uh, that drives cell shape changes. Uh, so it's also in the end underlying uh, crawling motions of cells, but also other uh, cellular functions such as uh, cell division or uh, phagocytosis. Um, so the actin cytoskeleton is a very versatile and dynamical structure. But it's not uniform, but it uh, typically can form and can rearrange into different functional um, structures, mostly in a self-organized way. And uh, among these functional structures, um, I'm specifically interested in so-called actin waves. Those are um, self-organized ring-shaped um, accumulations, dense accumulations of filamentous actin, and they can travel um, uh, through the cortical layer, and they are uh, precursors of um, uh, macropinocytic cups, so so structures that that uh, aid in, in liquid uptake. Uh, but these waves they also impact um, motility and even uh, division processes. And um, yeah, one focus of my research is basically to 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 try and understand uh, the dynamics. Uh, of these waves, so how and why are they moving the way inside the cell that they, that they move, and and this is important for several reasons. I mean, on the one hand, it will give us a better understanding of the uh, related cellular functions, and uh, on the other hand, it might in the future uh, allow us to actively manipulate. So once we understand the dynamics, we can also actively interfere with it and manipulate uh, uh, the related uh, cell functions. And, and that, that's not only interesting for life cell work, but it's, it also affects um, the agenda of synthetic biology, right? So since synthetic biology is a field uh, where scientists try to reconstitute cellular functions basically from scratch by, by uh, adding together uh, in the bottom-up way, adding together synthetic components. And, and also in this field, we need to understand how um, such complex network structures interact in order to, to form such uh, self-organized um, uh, functional structures. So um, we know that actin waves, um, they can be influenced by, the, for example, by the topology of the surroundings of the cell. Um, but it is not known uh, how exactly do they sense, for example, how do they sense topological features such as, uh, let's say, curvature of the surrounding. And in particular, um, it's, not, it's not known how this is related to their uh, internal structural organization, so to the way the filament network is organized inside these waves. And this is... Uh, uh, this is the aspect that that that, that really brings in uh, nano LSI uh, for me because at nano LSI the really the latest top level AFM tools to st to study these kind kinds of processes. I mean, the, quite a number of these techniques are still even not available to the wider scientific community because they're just under construction. And uh, nano LSI is definitely the the prime place at the forefront uh, where these uh, techniques are developed. So that makes it a very a very promising 
place to be for my field. Because as you see, I mean, most of the the information we have on these structures uh, comes from from fluorescence microscopy, so optical imaging of uh, of living cells, which is a great technique, but it of course has uh, limits uh, with respect to the the resolution that we can obtain at the level of cytoskeletal filaments. And then there may be other techniques. So there's some uh, recordings um, uh, of cytoskeletal structures by cryo-electron electron tomography. Um, but but I mean, I mean, they are fantastic. But but again, th those they have their limits uh, in the sense that those are static um, recordings of fixed samples. This is not imaging in in live cell, not in vivo. And uh, what I hope um, is that uh, by collaborating with uh, researchers and, and and experts at Nano LSI, that it might be possible perhaps one day to obtain. Um, dynamic high-speed uh, AFM images of such cortical wave structures. I mean, those are, of course, will be very difficult experiments, but if uh, if we could succeed that way, uh, that would be a great uh, a great progress. Have you been to Kanazawa? Have you visited Kanazawa University on the Nano LSI? Was uh, for a visit uh, actually twice in, in 2019, so it's already uh, okay. years ago now. So then COVID came and there was little opportunity for travel. But I I was there for to give a seminar uh, once and I also visited the labs and, and talked to several people. And then I think in fall 2019, I attended a conference that was organized also in Kanazawa University. And I could again meet with a bunch of people there, yeah. And do you have any thoughts and comments about the WPI program. Um, it seems to me to be quite unique to fund research over a very long period of time, 10 years, where you can hire people, construct buildings and so on. Yeah, I think it's, as at least as far as I'm aware of, it's it's quite unique. Um, in Germany, there was a, quite some time ago uh, an initiative was launched to establish so-called excellence universities, which is maybe a little bit in the same spirit, but it's not, um, the details are very different. This is more like uh, giving, this was more about giving larger amounts of funding to already existing places in order to, to bring them up to an internationally competitive level. So it was not... Uh, uh, not in the same sense about establishing a dedicated specific institute. So that's not really comparable. Mm -hmm. I no, I have not seen any comparable initiatives, uh, at least not that I know of. And I think it's, uh, it's actually a quite uh, strong approach from my, uh, from my opinion. I've only seen nano LSI, so I have not seen any other WPI projects, but Nano LSI was already from the first visit uh, a very impressive place to me because, I mean, obviously on the one hand you have this um, really cutting edge uh, scanning probe microscopy, which is which is uh, certainly uh, a unique feature worldwide, and and I think it makes a lot of sense to um, to screen the research landscape for these uh, unique um, 
these unique opportunities, right? So you 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 check whether there are some outstanding um, um, unique techniques and knowledges, and then you you decide to to give dedicated funding. And in particular, the the way they combine uh, with other fields. So there is ex really excellent cancer research, of course, in, in Kanazawa. Uh, and then uh, 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 just uh, as well, they have uh, supramolecular chemistry um, uh, teaming up uh, with this approach. And I think that, that 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 is actually what makes it strong. If you if you would limit it too much to the pure uh, technological aspect, then I think it would be again probably not so successful because it would remain more of a service, maybe that that you develop the technique as a service for others i mean that's maybe could also be uh, interesting but it's not it would not have the same impact as if combining it with uh, let's say two current um, um, fields such as cancer research and and, and polymer supramolecular chemistry so that uh, i think is is a very very successful recipe as far as i can tell and finally, what are you looking forward to uh, on your next visit to Kanazawa, apart from meeting your colleagues and talking about science? It's true that I'm very fond of uh, Japanese cuisine, yeah, so that's definitely something I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot. I was also very impressed by the uh, by the gardens uh, that I have seen. Uh, that was uh, um, a unique uh, atmosphere that I experienced there in the uh, Ken, Kenru Ken Garden, I think it's called. Thank you. That was Professor Karsten Bieter, an overseas-based principal investigator at the NanoLSI WPI at Kanagawa University. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to your company again for the next episode of the NanoLSI podcast. Please visit the NanoLSI website for the latest information on the research activities at the Kanagawa University World Premier Institute. <laughs>